Hola y bienvenido a Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Esther Armendariz, who is a freelance tenor trombonist based in the San Francisco Bay Area and is a member of the brass quintet Brass Over Bridges. She holds positions with the Santa Cruz Symphony, Stockton Symphony, and Symphony Silicon Valley, and has performed with the San Francisco Symphony, San Francisco Opera and Ballet Orchestras, and the Jalisco Philharmonic, among other regional orchestras. And we'll be talking about swing dancing, in particular, the Lindy Hop. Welcome, Esther. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Patty. Yay. So we met in passing, but with a few mutual friends at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. One particular mm-hmm. friend in mind is Ivo Bokulik, who is a dear friend to, I think, both of us. And did we ride munis together as well? I feel like we just also were in transit together often. And I feel like I just constantly saw you around. But as a brass player, especially in music school, it seems like there's this invisible wall between brass players and string players and right. maybe vocalists too. So yeah. anyway. Uh, and guitarists yeah. and pianists. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Evo was my roommate for a couple of years at the conservatory. And so like he was my introduction to maybe some string acquaintances and possibly friends. So yeah, I think that's, I we met see. on Muni yeah, that makes with sense. Evo, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The end train, right? Yeah, it's that Muni life. That is that outer sunset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I recently went to visit San Francisco when I injured my finger while slicing an onion. So I was like, hey, Evo, I just want to hang out. Like, can we do stuff? And he's like, yeah, you can come over. I have this dinner planned with Esther over in Oakland, where she lives now. And it's super fancy. Let's go. And I was like, okay. And you were so generous to allow me to come over and hang out, especially during these like COVID times. And also your house is just like amazingly beautiful. And I just am like, I would love to just sit here forever. Like. <laughs> It is a beautiful house. As a musician, it's not like I can afford the entire house, although I wish I could. But I mean, it's a five bedroom house. So split amongst six people, I share the master bedroom with my boyfriend, it ends up working out just fine. But yeah, it's it's a pretty modern house, like kind of one of those multi level like house on a hill by the Oakland Zoo. I was glad that you were able to come. I relish these hangs that we're able to do at the end of the pandemic with groups of vaccinated people. So yeah, it was really fun. I was happy that you came over. Yeah. While I was visiting your home recently back in May, I met your dog Dasha for the first time, who's such a sweetheart. Can mm-hmm. you tell me more about Dasha? Yeah, so Dasha is a one-eyed wonder, terrier chihuahua mutt thing. Um, thing? She, she's she's about eight and a half pounds, but she's all spunk. She's uh, almost 12 years old now. She's missing an eye because she got glaucoma, and we basically weren't able to afford the operation that allowed her to keep her eye but remove the lens which was our other option besides complete eye removal and so um, now her existing eye is kind of going through the same process but uh, we were able to catch the glaucoma before it fully formed so her eye is basically in this constant limbo where we give her eye drops that constrict her pupils so much so that her lens can't come all the way to the front of her eye and form the glaucoma completely she's also had multiple tumor removal surgeries, which those had happened like pretty shortly before she lost the eye. So that's part of the reason why we couldn't really afford to keep the eye at that time. But she's a little fighter and she's obsessed with balls. We get her balls that smell like chocolate chip cookies so that she's able to sniff them out. She's a really fun little companion to have around and much like your cat, which is like grabbing all of your attention. Dasha has been super attached to Winston and me. But yeah, 
She's a good duck. She's adaptable and spunky. Yeah. How old is she? She's about 12 years old. Wow. She's lived a good life for sure. And hopefully many more years to come. Yeah. I think the little dogs in general can live longer. So I'm hoping she's got at least a couple more years on her. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Can you share with us your most insane performance story? Yeah. So um, right after I finished college, so my graduate degree at SF Conservatory, I moved to Colorado um, and I lived there for one year. I got a one-year position with the Colorado Springs Philharmonic where I was playing like, awesome. second trombone slash associate principal. Yeah, it was, it was a really fun gig and like a really great first gig out of school. So I was living in a southern part of Denver in this suburb called Littleton. Basically, like a friend of mine's parents were empty nesters there and charged me very little for rent. So I lived there, even though the commute was like 50 minutes out from Colorado Springs. So I had a concert that week down in Colorado Springs. And there were, I think maybe the the first like really big snowstorms of the season. Mm-hmm. And something happened with the email list for the orchestra down there. And like, maybe because I was like a temporary member of the orchestra for the year or something, I wasn't on their email list for this schedule change that happened. And so I got a call for this rehearsal that I was supposed to be at for Beethoven 9. They called me about 15 minutes before the rehearsal was supposed to start, but there was this massive snowstorm and I was trying to get, they told me to try to get down to the rehearsal as soon as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And so like this freaking California native from Southern California who like barely knew how to drive in the snow to begin with I tried to make it all the way down there for the rehearsal and I did miraculously I did not hit any other cars I probably almost did like three different times and so I finally get there to the rehearsal and I get there with like an hour of the rehearsal left and the conductor didn't have the trombones play a single note for the entire rehearsal so I like drove down there freaking out yeah, it was like my first real professional gig ever. And I was I was totally freaking out about first of all, like not hurting myself, my car or anybody else on the road. I make it all the way down there. And I'm like, okay, well, you're freaking out because of like all this extra adrenaline from the drive down here, but you still need to do a good job. So there I am feeling like very kind of focused, adrenaline laden. And <laughs> the conductor didn't even have us play a single note for the whole thing. Anyway, that, that was it. And then like, I drove I mean... home in still the snowstorm. (laughs) There's got to be a little bit of courtesy for certain musicians. Like I know oftentimes like Mm -hmm. as a string player, we're always playing. So we know for the most part, we're always playing. So we don't really notice it that much. But for conductors to just work on certain passages that don't involve people, but then the rehearsal demands that everyone's there. It's sort of like one of those cognitive, like, aren't you aware that this is someone's time in life right now and, and potential danger? Like, just having a little bit of that kind of courtesy to at least play a little bit, but I don't know. I wasn't, yeah. I don't know exactly what you guys are working on at that point in particular, you know? Right. Yeah, I think it was the first rehearsal actually for the set. Yeah, which is a little bit shocking because usually they'll like run through the whole piece. Sure. You know, I feel like conductors tend to do that. That didn't happen that mm. time because the, I mean, the other trombone players like shared with me that they hadn't played at all up until that right. point. They were like, oh, you're safe. You haven't missed a note yet. And then it ended and it was like, you still haven't missed a note. Good job. I just basically got paid to freak out on the road, you know. Right. Out. All right. Shall we do some Spitfire questions? Sure. Okay. Sure. Mahler or um, Bruckner? Mahler. Debussy or Ravel? Mm, Ravel. 
Cats or dogs? Dogs. Appetizers or dessert? Appetizers. Sparkling or still water? Sparkling. This is the fan favorite question. Alternate universe musical instrument. That one's kind of hard. You know what? I actually really, not specifically to flatter you, but the cello, I think I would go with that for multiple reasons. Like, okay, the sound obviously is so beautiful. Like the way that you can connect from one note to the next, like makes it able to sound a little bit more vocal. It's like a little bit more in a vocal range, similar Mm -hmm. to the trombone. And it seems like of the different instruments, like the amount of potential injury related to the instrument <laughs> is not super up there, but you do have to buy another seat on an airplane for it, which sucks. Yeah, so. I know. That is the <laughs> yeah, that is the cost of playing our instrument. And also just lugging it around and walking into restaurants with it and people asking us like, is that a bass? Is that a guitar? Like, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Uh for sure (laughs) okay (laughs) being an early bird sounds appealing but uh yeah i can't do it okay (laughs) pandemic guilty pleasure this is embarrassing my boyfriend taught me to play magic the gathering have you heard of that what's that magic the gathering it's a card game it's like a a fantasy based card game you know how like for Yu-Gi-Oh or pokemon um yeah you can like buy cards and like battle other people that's Mm -hmm. a similar premise to magic the gathering it's it's called a deck building card game yeah like all the creatures are like these these fantasy creatures think i don't know like dungeons and dragons (laughs) is it a lot of role playing at all or is it there's no role playing yeah it's just a kind of convoluted card game with a lot of rules like it took at least five different times like five different playing sessions to actually learn the game so that's been something that i've learned how to do and has been like a a fun thing that we've done together but also extremely nerdy and somewhat embarrassing (laughs) oh it's fine I mean, we were just trying to distract ourselves in any possible way of getting through the lockdown, at least. Because, I mean, I guess the pandemic. Oh, I mean, I've certainly done a lot of, yeah, there's been certainly a lot of, like, binging on Netflix. That's for sure. Okay. Favorite professor shout out? Yeah, I don't know. I have to do a shout out to my private teacher in grad school, Tim Higgins. By far biggest influence on my playing and career. Yay. Awesome. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Sasha Cook the vocalist, mezzo-soprano. She's done a lot of recordings with MTT and San Francisco Symphony. My favorite recordings that she did were of a Mahler leader with the Colburn Orchestra, actually. I think they're on YouTube and Spotify. There's a lot of female vocalists. I know this sounds kind of stereotypical in general of female vocalists, but a female operatic vocalist who there's some quality of their singing that's just a little bit too much for me, like where I, I feel like it's, I'm just like not really sold on like their timbre mm-hmm. when they sing, essentially, or it's like maybe a little bit over the top, but there's something about the way that she sings and the quality of her voice where it's like almost perfect. It's like both angelic and also down to earth. There's something about it that doesn't feel too over the top. It's like the way that she sings, like her her voice, the quality of her voice is relatable, but still perfect and pure and just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Wow. That's <coughs> awesome. Most transformative performance experience? Probably when I was in college. Uh, there are a couple like performances that I had like as a younger player that made me feel more confident in the path 
that I ended up taking professionally. So I think when I was a sophomore at USC, I got to play on like an orchestra set and it was Pines of Rome. I mean, like that's such an easy piece of music to latch onto. You know, it's like it's like one of those pieces that I think is good to recommend for like new listeners of classical music. And I hadn't really been in the like orchestra world in high school, basically. Like college was more or less my first exposure to it. Playing that concert was so much fun. And that piece of music is is just almost magnetic in terms of just like enjoying it as a listener or a player. So that was probably my favorite performance that I've done, my most like memorable performance that I've done. It made me more confident in the career I was pursuing. Yeah. I actually <laughs> had forgotten slightly. I think we might have overlapped at USC. I think we talked about yeah, this recently as well. Mm-hmm. Again, there was there's there? always that barrier. Yeah, I graduated in 2013. And I I was there for my undergrad. So it was 2009 to 2013. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we definitely overlapped for a couple years. Yeah. Desert Island piece of any genre. This might be a little bit embarrassing, but I actually really like the song Closer by Nine Inch Nails. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it builds super, super well. You know, obviously it's like a racy song (laughs) if you're familiar with it. But I I think it's just like a really, really well-constructed song. And like, there's a lot of different hooks in the song that develop and are also connected like throughout Mm -hmm. the entire song. Anyway, I like super dig it. I like never get tired of listening to that song. So I think maybe that would be like, it also like pumps you up. Yeah. So I feel like that might be my Desert Island song. Yeah. It's good to have some Nine Inch Nails on the island with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'd probably be sad, you know, so I feel like that song would like counter that pretty well. (laughs) Yeah, I see. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You made it through the Spitfire question round. Congratulations. Hooray. I, I got out my slide whistle because you're a trombonist. So. Nice. I, I know my trombone is like a couple floors down. <laughs> Can you walk us through your musical origin story? When did you discover the trombone? When did you know that that was the instrument that was going to become your career? And walk us through the steps. You know, we already kind of shared a little bit. You went to USC, you went to SFCM, where we overlapped together there. And, mm-hmm. and take us to where you are today. I guess my earliest musical memories are, are of being like a kindergartner and like wanting to play guitar in like the group of first grade guitar players who like went to nursing homes and sang Christmas songs over three chords, you know. My first like main exposure to music, I think was like in the fourth and fifth grade with like music appreciation courses. And then I like, I begged my parents for like a crappy $100 keyboard and basically downloaded like pop songs from the internet that I could find and would like play those. I can't remember when I learned to read music but that certainly like helped accelerate my ability to read music was just like trying to learn those songs on piano started taking piano lessons when I was I think in the eighth grade which is also when I started band and so my middle school was sixth grade through eighth grade so I was like in the graduating class of the middle school but my older sister I have one sister who's three years older than me she basically saw that I was really into just music in general and she said that I should join the band when I was in eighth grade and the band was actually like quite strong I think it was the strongest one in the entire valley where I was if not one of the strongest and so 
so I joined in LA. What part of Cal- Southern California did you grow up? I grew up in the Palm Springs area. Um, I, oh, okay. The town is called Indio, but it's where Coachella Fest is held. That's sure, like yeah, kind of nice. it's, it's claim to fame. I've never gone though. Anyway, that at the middle school there, I wanted to get away from the sixth graders and beginning band as quickly as I possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> So the band teacher said, well, the only instrument that's open and the advanced band where you wouldn't have to like kick somebody out of their spot was the euphonium. And so that was technically my first instrument. And so for listeners who don't know, who are non-musicians, like euphonium is basically a tiny tuba and you only see it really in like wind bands or like military bands, which are wind bands, but it shares the same mouthpiece as the trombone. And so then Mm -hmm. I was able to like get into the advanced bands in the eighth grade I think like the second semester or whatever I did the audition and then my freshman year of high school um, I started on euphonium but very very quickly my band director who already knew that I had an interest in pursuing music professionally you know I didn't really at the time I didn't really know what it meant to be a professional musician I feel like I didn't fully learn that until I got to college but I mean there was just nothing else that I liked more that I, I felt like I had other options, I guess. Like I was a total school nerd and I like mm-hmm. did well in most of my classes, except like mm-hmm. chemistry and history, which, you know, I felt like I had a struggle to stay awake in those classes. I like knew that I wanted to pursue music seriously and probably professionally, even when I was like 13 and 14. And so my band director knew that and he said, well, you can't play the euphonium <laughs> if you want to be a professional musician yeah unless you like try to be basically at the quality of like a soloist because you can only win jobs in military bands to make a living and at first I was like screw you like all the good solos in the wind ensemble are for the euphonium Mm -hmm. and I think that year we were doing Lincolnshire Posey by Percy Granger if you're familiar with that piece of the wind band piece a really really fun like and so many great melodies for the euphonium in that piece and I think we did like whole first suite in E flat same like lots of great solos for the euphonium and so I was like mm-hmm. I felt like he was taking something away from me <laughs> and, sure yeah, but yeah then yeah. I think there was like a guest director who came in like an honor band director or something who came in and he literally got this honor band director to come and talk to me and tell me that I couldn't play the euphonium and I had to switch wow. to trombone and so finally I was like okay you guys like now I'm sure that you guys are both smarter than me you know being like a <laughs> cocky cocky stupid 14 year old and I was like okay I guess I need to do this so I did and it wasn't too bad like the, again the mouthpiece is basically the same and once I learned to like move my slide quickly from one position to the next it was fine (laughs) yeah and then uh, I kind of just like kept on going on that track I started taking private lessons when I was a junior in high school from a middle school band director who played the tuba there just like weren't really a lot of professional musicians in that area at least not orchestral players and then I went to USC for my undergrad and like kind of learned what it actually meant to be an orchestral player or just what like pursuing um, music on the classical side of things like really meant in terms of your career there were just a couple 
concerts, I think in, in high school, like that concert that we ended up playing on that had the Granger piece that I mentioned earlier, like a Triposi and the whole first suite in E flat. I remember just getting like really intense chills during that concert for a high school band. Mm-hmm. That group, that particular group that way, year was also pretty strong. So it was just like a really satisfying musical experience. And I loved playing in the ensemble so much. So I like felt like that was kind of one of the first real cementing moments for me, like wanting to continue doing something like that, basically playing in a large ensemble, I guess. And then the Pines of Rome experience that I mentioned earlier felt similar to me when I was at at USC, like kind of another milestone to the point where I was like, like all of my like dorm friends at USC who like didn't know, (laughs) like didn't know anything about classical music. I was like, you need to listen to this piece. And I was like (laughs) playing like the second movement for like every Everybody, and they were just like, mm-hmm, yeah, that's cool. Like, it sounds like movie music. Okay, well, that's something. It's better than nothing, I guess. Meanwhile, I was like, yeah, because for them, mu- anything <laughs> classical sounding is going to be movie music to people that don't actively go and listen to classical music, I bet. Right. But they still seem to enjoy it, which I guess made me feel a little bit better <laughs> about like pursuing yeah. a career in classical music. Yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of okay. it. And then I, so, I just kept on going. What was your decision to go to USC? Was it mainly to pursue performance degree in trombone performance or was it undecided or right so I signed up as a music major but I also with like the encouragement of my mother kept things open to a second degree I guess more so like as a safety but also like just to make the most of my time at the school um, because tuition is so much. I did end up getting a scholarship from the school that was basically for like well-rounded students. It wasn't directly from the music school. Like for undergraduate students, they offered full tuition, half and then quarter tuition scholarships. And so I got the full tuition scholarship. And my mom was like, make the most of this. Like this is insane, you know, Mm -hmm. that you're you're able to get a degree here for free. So like Mm -hmm. get to. (laughs) So I got a degree in public relations, which is kind of a smaller one. It has a way smaller number of units so I was able to like fit it in with the insane music schedule as you know where like yes one class is one unit I know <laughs> right orchestras like I never understood yeah. the credits with orchestra because you know credit's supposed to be per hour of each class but orchestra meets three times a week for like three hours and you get two mm-hmm. credits for it or whatever it is and it's like I'm yeah. spending way more time in this class than the credits I'm deserving and it's just like ah, it mm-hmm. all begins here <laughs> Yeah, I should be getting paid right. more. <laughs> like, yeah, true that. Where's my union? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to go into well, like a, a music major, but I also like took another major, which well, I guess was helpful in some ways. Like it helped me get like certain student jobs more easily, and like w- maybe with some promotions that I've had to do with like the brass quintet and stuff like that. It's been kind of helpful, but yeah. um, I haven't actually done any real jobs that are in the field of public relations. I know how difficult the music degree is at USC. And I think it's inspiring to hear that you were able to do two of those degrees simultaneously. So congratulations for that. You definitely got your money's worth. (laughs) Or someone else's money's worth, maybe. (laughs) Oh, yes, that's true. I don't know. The Starbucks across the street from the music school was like my savior. (laughs) (laughs) The only time in my life that I've had a Starbucks card was during that degree. So you decided to continue with the music despite having dual degrees and mm-hmm. that's when you wound up in San Francisco yeah and so so I, I auditioned at San Francisco Conservatory and 
and ended up studying with Tim Higgins, which was awesome. I think I was only, it was either his second or third year as a teacher at SFCM. So, I mean, I guess he was like a fairly young teacher at that time, but I, I don't know. He still felt so, so invested in the students. I used to be, he probably had more experience than that because he was at the teaching at Northwestern too. I don't know. I, I just felt like he was super, super invested in his students progress and their careers and just being great musicians in general. He just had such a high bar that I wasn't used to experiencing from previous teachers, like just like a really, really clearly high level of expectation from all the students. It was like super intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but also extremely valuable. And I still think about lessons here and there that I had with him when I am freaking practicing (laughs) on my own. Just like, oh, this is what he would say if he heard me playing right now. (laughs) <laughs> that sort of thing but yeah so I, so I went there and it was it was a good place to be you know a totally different scene from USC as you know mm-hmm. like super tiny and isolated I like totally I mean I guess you can think of like the music school at USC as a sort of conservatory style but you could at least get away from it <laughs> yes true um, yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, whereas as at SFCM, I just like that was a little bit of a shock, but I also was like old enough at that point and like committed enough to what I was doing that it was manageable. Okay. And then you graduated. Yeah. And as you described in the Spitfire questions, you won a one year position with the Colorado Springs Symphony, right? Yeah, I, I just like went, I was able to dive right in. Thankfully, there wasn't too much floating around for me besides like the two or three months after graduating. I think in May, right before I graduated from my degree, I took the audition. It was for a one year temporary position in Colorado Springs Philharmonic. I think the second trombone player like had a baby. His name's Owen Homayun, and he actually used to live in the house that I moved into after coming back from Colorado Springs in San Francisco. It was a really great experience. I mean, technically it was a regional orchestra. I think it used to be full-time, but they, I think they hold more concerts in general than like many of the regional orchestras that I play in around here. They, I think they did like on average two concert sets a month, but it was a really good initial exposure to the professional like orchestral world. And the section, the trombone and low brass section there was awesome. And it was just like great to play with them and mm-hmm. to just learn what it was it meant to be to just like be a, a solid section player so yeah that was great and then after that was over I moved back to the Bay Area moved back to San Francisco specifically the summer before I moved back I auditioned for Stockton Symphony for their second trombone position and managed to win that audition which was also fantastic another really really great low brass section and then it kind of every every new year I was able to acquire a new position basically until maybe a year before the pandemic hit so like the next year I auditioned for Santa Cruz Symphony that was their principal spot managed to grab that and then the year after that I auditioned for the second trombone spot in Symphony Silicon Valley managed to grab that spot so I have three regional contracts in the Bay Area and it's been really lucky like the sections have all been really great really great people really great players and generally like healthy relationships within the orchestra between like admin conductor orchestra itself for the most part it's been really nice that way if it were any different I like might be jaded in some way (laughs) and it's so easy for that to happen too I mean I thank you for bringing that point up because it's not just about the relationships between your colleagues on stage with you Mm -hmm. it's a trickle down effect if things aren't going well between the orchestra members to the administration
connection to, yeah, it's like a, it's a whole organism. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you join Brass Over Bridges? It was an organic start. One of the trumpet players at the time, his name is Matt Ibisuzaki. He had access to this practice studio where he was working in, I think, like Dog Patch. He used to work for this like video production studio, but he only had access to like bring other people into the studio to rehearse anything really early in the morning. So it kind of felt like he was like siphoning out people based on commitment <laughs> to like for sure. And, and it Speaking was just of like the a, early bird yeah. versus night owl situation, <laughs> right? Oh my god, it was so hard. We would get there, and I think it was like around seven in the morning that we would like meet up and literally just read quintets for fun. And essentially, like the group of people who was willing to show up that early in the morning formed the group. So it kind of just started as a reading group that like slowly started to solidify. And so now the group serves a combination of putting on a three part recital series every year, as well as taking those programs out to different concert series that we do not produce and doing a lot of educational shows and like different community engagement shows. So like we'll go out to schools. And for the most part, these programs that we've put on are free. We've done like a lot of free public concerts that we've either been hired for or like have gotten grants for or fundraised for or straight up have just done for free. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it's turned into. But the group itself, at least as we've been named Brass Over Bridges, I think we're about three years old. Nice. And shout out to Ari Mishik, past guest of the podcast, who also mentioned Brass Over Bridges because he's in the ensemble too. Yeah, he's a good yeah. addition to it. And he also likes to compose music. And so he's like written, I think, one original piece, maybe two original pieces for us and done some arrangements too, which is like pretty valuable to have in the yeah. group. Okay. Are you ready to take a break? Sure. Okay. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So how did you get into swing dancing? I think I was a sophomore at USC and I took an elective class. Like they had a ballroom dance class at USC. Did you take that when you were there? No, no, that's awesome. I didn't know it existed. It was cool. They, I mean, they take you through like lots of different styles of dancing, but they include swing dancing and like salsa dancing, which like some of the most like popular social dances. I always was just like really into dancing in general but never like learned it in any kind of structured way. I have memories of just like, I'm sure a lot of people do of like being at like cousins weddings or like being at some like family party and like some uncle like literally just forces you to dance and like teaches Mm -hmm. you some like basic two-step thing. I don't know, but I like actually really enjoyed doing that as a kid and was, was super into it. Like knew I probably wasn't a very good dancer, but like enjoyed doing it anyway. So like whatever, I took a ballroom dance class when I was in college and then I don't remember if I had a conversation with somebody about it but I had a friend a flute player at USC who you maybe know her name is Rachel Mellis she introduced me to like this swing dancing like club and like school that was near Manhattan Beach I can't remember the exact name of the town oh okay yeah so shout out to Rusty Frank she introduced me to swing dancing at this place and so I went and was like super into it did like the intro lesson and then started taking classes. And so 
throughout my time at USC, I wasn't always able to like take a class because they would always be on the same day every week. But I was able to like take classes with some regularity or at least like be able to go out like social dancing every now and then. And of course, like the style, there's different styles of swing dancing. And I think the most popular one in general is called Lindy Hop. It has to do with like when like the back step takes place or like whether or not there's like a triplet subdivision in the step Mm -hmm. that you do. But honestly, the only one that I really know how to do is Lindy Hop. That's where I started with that. In preparation for this episode, I looked up the origin of the Lindy Hop. (laughs) Do you know the or do you know the story of why it's named the Lindy Hop? No, I don't. So the Lindy Hop was one of many, as you said, of swing dances that became popularized in the 1930s and 40s, right? As we all kind of know. Again, especially from the African-American communities. Mm -hmm. And of course, when it got popularized and publicized on TV, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. This was also around the same time that Charles Lindbergh did his famous solo transatlantic flight. And apparently there was some Harlem dance marathon that happened where this man named George Snowden coined the term of it being the Lindy Hop because it was so distant. It was like you were hopping the Atlantic. Oh, nice. So that's that's what at least I discovered as the origin of the term Lindy Hop or the name of it. That kind of makes sense. I do feel like even though like generally like your stance during the dance, like your feet for the most part stay in the same spot. Once you go from like the back step to like the furthermost forward step that you take, like for the basic step, it is kind of far <laughs> as opposed to like yeah. other dances where I feel like salsa dancing like you just kind of keep everything like really close and like yeah. it just makes everything Tight. kind of easier yeah that's interesting I didn't know that but it's funny because there's like so many like so Lindy Hop and like swing dancing in general I don't know if it's always been this way but at least nowadays like it's just very silly and like the names of a lot of the dance moves it's like very clear that somebody just like made it up and then came up with yeah. some silly name for it like there's a dance move called like the tacky annie like what (laughs) yeah uh i don't know if i think of other ones like off the top of my head i'll I'll throw them out there but that's like the most silly that i can remember i guess there's like a kind of swing dancing line dance that happens it's called the tranky do like what is that (laughs) yeah it's all super silly so why did you gravitate towards the lindy hop like as opposed to salsa dancing or like a different style of swing yeah honestly it was kind of just where i started it seems like the most popular in terms of like the number of classes that are out there it seems like the other like swing classes that are offered tend to be a little bit more like specialized they seem to start people out with the lindy hop at least on the west coast i think that's the way things are i think when you go to the east coast i feel like things get done a little bit differently Um, but i'm not totally sure about that but I, i think it might be the most popular type of swing dancing that there is out there and that's probably why but i i mean i was into like salsa dance I thought it was, it was at least really cool based on like that class that I took when I was at USC, the ballroom dance class. But the reason why I liked swing dancing more or chose to like go that route in terms of the classes that I took was because it kind of feels like a happy pill. <laughs> <laughs> 
when you like go out to do like social dancing for like yeah. Lindy Hop, first of all, there's like a little bit of a, a nice sort of culture in terms of like avoiding creepiness when you go out to dance. There's sort of this unspoken rule that you shouldn't dance more than like two songs with the same person before asking somebody mm-hmm. else for a dance, which is kind of mm-hmm. nice and makes it like low pressure in terms of like, mm-hmm. you know, if you meet somebody where you're like, oh, that person kind of sketches me out, like I don't want to want to see that person the entire night that part is nice it's also just like it's basically big band music the whole time which is like super like bright and like cheesy and in general just like really happy (laughs) music there's not a lot of Mm -hmm. darkness (laughs) in a big band music Mm -hmm. and the dancing kind of reflects that it's like really kind of happy it's kind of i feel like it's hard to swing dance like for anyone without a smile on their face and it's almost like if you're not having a good time you're not doing it right or you're not like doing it as well as you could so that was a really big like appeal to me it was just like super super fun and like there's so many goofballs out there that it's not a place where you're gonna be judged It was really fun. By no means am I like an amazing swing dancer or anything, but it's like one of those things that I always like end up going back to one way or another. Like I end up going and taking a class or just like going out and social dancing, like finding a place to go where they're having a swing dance night. And it's it's always fun, like no matter how rusty I am at it. (laughs) Usually when you go out social dancing, you obviously don't have any choreography that you're like, I'm going to do it like this and this and this the whole time, right? Yeah. So I'm assuming there's, as you're saying, there's like certain steps you learn. Mm -hmm. And then when you dance with someone else, a stranger, that it's a improvisation or a bit of a like chamber music moment of feeling, oh, this person's going to about to do this move. So I I know what to do or I want to, is it, is that kind of the dynamic that happens? Yeah, definitely. In terms of like the way that it all works, it does relate to music a lot. So you do learn like different steps or moves and you learn the same one as a leader and a follower which is kind of how it works like right so it's a a partner dance for the most part and there's a leader who is traditionally male although like there are a lot of like really experienced female dancers who also know how to lead Mm -hmm. and then there's followers that's usually danced by the woman or whoever wants to be a follower and so whoever's dancing lead kind of makes the decisions as -hmm. far as like what moves to like take the follower through but the steps are all like they've almost all been done before I don't think I've ever like danced with somebody where the leader literally was just like making something up completely on the fly although sometimes it has felt like it so perhaps they have I I mean it's like a really goofy dance so I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past people yeah but for the most part it's like it's like the little dance moves all exist but it's improvised in terms of the way that they're put together and the way that that is decided I think at least by like good dancers good leads is based on the music that they're listening to and so for the most part the way that good leaders in Lindy Hop tried to structure what dance moves they create is based on the phrasing in the music Mm -hmm. and like when I've danced with people they freaking like know all of these big band tunes and Mm -hmm. to the point where I hear them kind of like humming along like the entire time or like singing the lyrics so they like 
follow the phrasing of the music and like the way that the the phrases like interact with each other like whether it's leading to something else or like mm-hmm. concluding or if there's going to be like a big silence in the middle of the music they make all of the dance moves reflect that which is super right. super cool so as a follower you're like basically just trying to like stay totally glued to like what the leader is doing which of course like listening to the music like makes it easier to know what they're gonna do or simply just like trying to really like intuit what they're doing so that you can like follow them as well as they can or as well as you can mm-hmm. it kind of reminds me of like playing a principal in a section versus being a mm-hmm. section player like <laughs> More so, like, being a a follower, that kind of rings true to me a little bit more, where, like, you want to, like, support your principal player, like, to the point where, like, if they make a mistake, it sounds like they didn't make a mistake, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And you just want to make them sound better and make, like, the whole section sound like a single cohesive unit. In swing dancing, I think a lot of social dancing, the job of the follower is to, like, make whatever the lead is deciding just flow as effortlessly as possible a part of that can be like stylizing what you're doing i feel like like a follower has a little bit more room to like stylize the dance moves as opposed to keeping them more bare bones but i will admit that's probably like the thing i'm worst at Well, yeah, I guess what do you, do you mean flourishing, just like kind of adding little ornaments at the tail end of, I'm using my hands right now to try to gesture things, but that's what you mean, right? Kind of like ending things with an extension in your, in your frame or extension in your, in your extremities and stuff like that. Or adding like little kind of extra steps or like angling your feet a certain way instead of just going like straight from point A to point B, adding more curves to what you're doing or extra steps. And again, like a lot of that, the sort of like stylizing or flourishing that we're talking about, it's basically never new either. Like that's something that you get taught as well is how to like stylize your dancing. But yeah, it's essentially, you can essentially think of it as like flourishes of what's happening. It's uh, like adding stuff to the bare bones of the steps. Yeah. It might be difficult to do and <laughs> it might be easier just to direct someone to YouTube. To yes. I had to I was I was like, I know I've seen it before, but could you briefly describe how the Lindy Hop works or the steps or tricks that people do? Because it's a pretty athletic dance. It can be, yeah. I think Uh, As far as, like, bigger tricks where, like, people are being lifted up into the air, which is, I think, what a lot of people, like, picture swing dancing to be, (laughs) is, like, being this Mm -hmm. acrobatic thing. I think only, like, extremely seasoned dancers who also, like, are dancing with the same partner for a really long period of time, like, they're the kinds of people that you see, like, throwing being thrown into the air because they like have developed like that strength of collaboration and also sense of trust and like expectation of each other so that they can pull it off without like hurting themselves but like the basic step for lindy hop which is what like almost all of the dance is based on is actually a six count move even though basically all the music is in four or like divided into eight so like at least a follower you like step forward with your right foot Uh, you have like your your right foot and your left foot in the same spots like your right foot kind of in front of your left foot and you step with the right foot where it is and then you step with the back foot leaning your weight where it is and then you bring your right foot back behind your Mm -hmm. left foot and sort of propel yourself forward so like that that's at least how like you get taught 
the basic step when you start out, but really like all of the dance moves, which extend, almost all of them extend from that framework. They technically start with that sort of propelling step where you like push back from your right foot behind your left. And I think that propelling, that as well as like the tension that you feel in pushing and pulling against your partner gives you the ability to like do these different moves that make it more like swing dancing where you're being like swung around, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. It seems kind of crazy, but essentially like your connection with your partner is like a rubber band that's constantly like flexing. I was just thinking that. It's constantly flexing outward or inward by like always having some tension either being pulled or like pushed against each other. That's basically how it can happen and also how like the communication of what dance move is happening happens as well, right? Like the Mm -hmm. a leader either pushes or pulls from the follower and so then they can feel the movement or that like communication of movement from the leader with the tension mm-hmm. that's happening because if everything's like too kind of loosey-goosey like you can't really feel anything the moves right. can't be communicated and so most of it happens like with the hands you know like pushing and pulling right. with the hands and sometimes like the back as well I guess sure. often the back so most of the moves are six count but then like Lindy Hop has a lot of Charleston like embedded into it mm-hmm. and Charleston is an eight count move and that's like that's like the I think the swing dance move that everybody pictures where it like it's like jazz hands <laughs> like people like kicking their legs up in the air the steps going backwards and forwards this charleston also starts with like the same like propelling step that goes from from the back but the combination of steps going forward and back ends up being eight counts including that like propelling step um, behind you mm-hmm. so it sounds like a little bit that the charleston's more i mean this is going to be a little bit nerdy music talk for a second yeah but it sounds like charleston's a little bit more in a common time mm-hmm. whereas the lindy hop is more in compound meter uh, like a 12 8 instead of a f- yes, four, four. that's that's right. Yeah, so like the basically, there's like three spots where your feet get placed for the like Lindy Hop step, standard step. So besides the back step that propels you forward, where your feet are placed or your weight is shifted for like forward back. If the song is slow enough, those get divided into triplets. I, I guess it's essentially you know swung. The subdivision is like. Triple step for forward, triple step for back, and then rock step. So da 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 rock step da 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 rock step. That's what mm-hmm. essentially what the feel is. So they're not they're not exactly triplets. It's more like swung eighth notes, I guess. But three in the front, three That's, in the back, yeah. and then the rock step. Yeah, right. So obviously, as you've mentioned, the music is the integral part of this dance. Like you can't really do a Lindy Hop without or any swing dancing or any dancing without music or the knowledge as you were talking about the phrasing of the song. Yeah. Being a musician yourself, do you derive anything from your experiences being a musician to your dance or does the dance inform any of your musicianship? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I think it goes both ways. For the most part, I think that being a musician influences the dancing more than the other way around. But that being said, Mm -hmm. I I think sometimes it does go the other direction as well, especially if I have been actually doing a lot of swing dancing. But like the way that being a musician influences swing dancing is being a better follower by listening to the music. It helps with the anticipation of what the leader is like trying to do with whatever steps, but it also like allows me to like 
reflect it in whatever ways that I can take liberties, like with styling or just like really just being more cohesive with like the lead and like reflecting the music as best as possible, which I kind of feel like is like the whole point of it. So yeah, it helps in that way. Just like those listening skills, having a good sense of rhythm uh, obviously helps in general with dancing. Mm, That's more or less it. Most mostly about like the direction besides having good rhythm it's about like feeling the direction of the phrase with the way that like swing dancing affects making music I feel like it is related to the same thing it's like about that commitment to the phrase that you carry when you're dancing but I think the fact that I can experience it in like two different mediums you know dancing and music making it makes phrasing stronger like it helps me sort of commit to the phrase more by experiencing doing that through dance instead of I see making sound (laughs) yeah so it's like the concept of the longer phrase and the longer trajectory of the song rather than I feel like oftentimes especially students get trapped in the bar by bar rather than thinking of the hypermeter or the longer phrases yeah and how how they're connected to each other like you were saying like the direction for an entire piece of music rather than like just the single phrase what happens at the end of the phrase you know or like what's what is its role in like the larger piece that you're playing yeah um it definitely goes both ways but i feel like being a musician is more helpful to my dancing in general than dancing is to making music i see Mm -hmm. Do you have any fun outfits that you have when you go swing dancing or do you just go in your normal street clothes? Okay, it seems like the standard, at least for followers and like, I guess, women is wearing Keds, (laughs) like, like, especially really white like Ked lace-ups it's that's like something that most swing dancers wear I think it has to yeah. do with like the sole of the shoe it's just uh it's not super like sticky but you're also like not gonna totally slip and fall and it also kind of like the style like looks a little bit 40s 50s but other than that not really there have been a couple times where I've like worn something that seemed to like fit the style a little bit more but for the most part I just kind of like get ready for like an evening out where I feel like my skirt's like not gonna fly up completely if I get spun too fast but that yeah yeah. or bicycle shorts yeah (laughs) (laughs) right right yeah that's actually the solution but not no not not too much yeah there are definitely a lot of people who do go all out though and it adds a lot of like flair to the night when there are people who are like dressed up like that and going all out yeah okay so mainly of course with dancing the most important piece of equipment are your shoes and yeah it sounds like there's some advice that like women are given in terms of the or or just people with long hair um to like not have their hair in like a high ponytail because when they get spun around their hair will just like flip the lead in the face So, That's funny. yeah, so, and, like, low ponytail is fine, um, but usually people with long hair will just, like, do something other than a high ponytail for the sake of their dance partner. Yeah, okay, <laughs> funny little courtesy, courtesies of yeah. <laughs> swing dancing. Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> Are there any remaining thoughts that you had or wanted to share about swing dancing? 
Just that if you're listening to this podcast and you are just at all interested in like ballroom dancing, whether it's like swing or salsa or like whatever other type of dance to just like go for it, especially swing dancing. There is like so much goofiness involved, but honestly, that's like part of the point. So, you know, there's just absolutely like no shame in just going out there and having fun. It's kind of just like a hobby or something to do much like anything else, whether it's like board games or cycling. <sighs> Somebody, I feel like everyone I know is into cycling around here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would just say, like, just go for it. And there's, uh, I feel like every big city has a scene. Like, internationally, there's a, a swing dance scene in every big city. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing your outside interest of swing dancing. And it's really cool how it does tie in so much to music or how much of that is really relatable as a musician. Yeah. Yeah. May I ask you two final questions? Yeah, of course. What is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self about entering and pursuing a music career? I've always had a tendency to sort of dive into the technical over the musical. Mm -hmm. And I think that even though they're like totally related, like if you only focus on technique, you don't have music. I would give myself the advice as a younger player to always prioritize making music and not just good technique. Or, or being like, technically good. And then the other thing is just to be willing to take more risks or just not be afraid of embarrassment to just go for it. Because life is so short. Like, and in music, like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen, really? Like, you might sound bad. Like, like, you're basically the only person who, like, will be strongly affected by that and, like, really care. So, like... <laughs> So just like going for it. That's kind of it. Music first and just go for it. Yeah. And my second question, as we enter a, well, post-pandemic or a newly changed pandemic world. Yeah, I should probably rephrase this question. (laughs) Um, What elements of your musical pandemic life would you want to continue and what would you want to shed? I I guess over the course of the pandemic, I've played more repertoire that I've maybe wanted to play, like explored solos that I didn't explore before. For like, not all of the pandemic, but certain periods of the pandemic, I like was practicing more than I did when I was like fully gigging. Like the benefits of that are just so great. Things that I want to keep are maybe just like playing more solo rep in general just for fun and also just like making sure that I am practicing as much as I want to be practicing even if that means shedding other things in my schedule things that I want to get rid of like forever are not playing with other people (laughs) that of course yeah yeah. that's like been such a detriment (laughs) to my life in general and to an extent my playing so I think I mean that one's kind of like by default once the pandemic is fully over of course I will be playing with other people right yeah I'm just like looking forward to playing with other people on a regular basis I really feel like it feeds me as a musician you know even when I'm by myself practicing like the fact that I can play with other people or have played with other people totally fuels like my individual musicianship Yeah, we need each other. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, Esther, are there any platforms or websites for listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects? Yeah. So I have my own website and it's estertrombone.com. But I guess my more interesting projects that I have uh, is mostly my brass quintet, um, which is Brass Over Bridges. For anybody who is a brass nerd or wants to be on the brass nerd train or just is into like music education in general, highly encourage you people to visit www.brassoverbridges.com or our YouTube channel. You can just look up Brass Over Bridges. We also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and a Twitter. <laughs> On Instagram and Facebook, our handle is at Brass Over Bridges. Um, and then on Twitter, it's at Brass underscore SF. Okay. And if you enjoyed listening, be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you're tuning into this podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. It doesn't need to be long. Your review will help others search for the podcast because of its crazy algorithms. And you'll make Sushi's Day. And it's free. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family as well. If you want to level up, you can always become part of the Hiding Behind the Music Stand family by donating what you will on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hideandmusicstand. Our social media handle for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is at Hide and Music Stand, and we'd love to hear from you at our email, hideandmusicstand at gmail.com. Didn't recognize a piece we discussed during the episode? No worries. There's a Spotify playlist with all the music discussed for your convenience. The link is in the description of each episode. Esther, thank you so much again for taking some time today to be on the show. It's been such a pleasure to see each other in last May, but also reconnect since then. Yeah, absolutely. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And thanks for listening. Sushi, say bye.